listening to a resource from Jambrew Anglican Church. Uh, starting off with a really light and easy one. Question one. How does pouring water on a baby in baptism declare that salvation is by faith, not works? Well, a few weeks ago, I answered a bunch of questions about baptism, including one about baptising babies. And this question asked how the pouring of water on a baby is a way of declaring salvation is by faith and not works. Fair question. Well, firstly, baptism is something that Jesus came up with. Uh, He commands us to make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we know that water itself doesn't have any special powers that cause someone to be forgiven. The act of pouring the water or dunking someone all the way under is just a symbol of how God washes away our sin when we repent and believe in Jesus. Now, that's why I reckon baptism is a great way of showing salvation is by faith and not by works. Because you notice you don't baptise yourself. Like, you don't sort of turn up to the baptism showers and do have a bit of a baptism and you've done your thing. You get baptised by the church. Uh, and so that's a, it's a passive thing in that sense. But what is, what is signified by the baptism is the forgiveness of sins, which only happens by faith and not by works. It's not a thing you do. It's a thing you receive. You believe and you receive the forgiveness of sins. So water baptism is a great way to show that salvation is by faith, not by works. But it's more than just a declaration. It, it's, a, it's a tangible, physical thing that Jesus gave us, like the Lord's Supper. That's a, it's a physical thing that we can, we can be thankful to him for because it's, a, it's an expression, a powerful, remember, a, a powerful expression of his love for us. So what about babies? How does this work if they're too young to make a statement of faith? Well, I've addressed this a little bit over the last few weeks, but I'll give you a little bit more again. The thing about infant baptism is that the infant baptism is still by faith. It just happens to not be the faith of the kid. It's the faith of the believing parent. And so when the parent says uh, the promises, then the child is then considered to be a Christian, a member of God's household, because they are in God's covenant family, his promise community. But when they get old enough, they need to be able to make those promises themselves. And so that is why we have a confirmation service in our church. And we're hoping to do that this year sometime. If you've been baptised and not confirmed, let me know. I'd love to have you part of the action as well as we bring in our bishop and he can do that confirmation service. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptised, then come and chat to me. I'd love to baptise you. What a wonderful thing to do out of obedience to Jesus is to be baptised when you become a follower of his. And if you've got kids who haven't been baptised yet, then come and talk to me too. I'd love to chat about whether you'd be uh, happy for us to, to go down that pathway as well. All right, question two. If animals cannot receive the Holy Spirit, then can they go to heaven? Well, this came off the back of a, a question a couple of weeks ago where someone said, what's more important, a baby or a thousand lions? Mm. And I said, a baby, because humans are made in the image of God and humans receive the Holy Spirit when they trust in Jesus. And so humans are completely different to the animals. And so this question then says, well, if animals cannot receive the Holy Spirit, how can they go to heaven? Well, the Bible tells us that there will be animals in heaven and there won't be sadness in heaven. But it might not be your puppy dog that's in heaven. We're not told. We don't know. Uh, But you're not going to get to heaven and say, I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to be with Jesus. This is a joy beyond belief. Where's Scruffy? That's not going to happen. Uh, 
But you can uh, take comfort in God that uh, the gift you've received as ha- by having your animal on earth is, uh, is, is a gift that you should not be sad about when they pass away uh, beyond the normal sadness. And I understand that myself. Question three. How can Psalm 40 be about Jesus when verse 12 says, my sins pile up so high? I preached on Psalm 40 a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 40 is a psalm that is a psalm of David, which means it's David flavoured. It's it's Davidic. It's about King David. And it's also about the future kings as well. And ultimately, the most future king, which is the Messiah, Christ Jesus, the great Messiah. And so when we see a psalm that says of David, we need as Christians to understand it as firstly in its context of a thousand years before Jesus. But also now we need to see it as being about Jesus before it comes to us. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews saw of it. So when the writer to the Hebrews, so that was something was written, you know, about, I don't know, probably 60 AD or something like that. When that was written, he quoted Psalm 40, a thousand years earlier. And the words that were said by David, he said that referred to Jesus. So that's the way that the Hebrew writer understands the psalm. So if that's true, the question says, how can it be about Jesus when it says his sins pile up so high? Well, it's two things. It's on the first level, it's about King David himself, who we know he had plenty of sins. On another level, we can see that it does express so many things that Jesus himself went through. For example, his desolation and and being left alone at the end and people mocking him. You see all that at the end of Psalm 40. But perhaps as we see him talk about this grief of sins and so on, it may even be that there's a little bit of an inkling of what it meant for him to take upon himself the sins of the world. And so in his grief there, his sins piling up so high, I think there's a little bit of that. It, look, it's a, as is a lot of the case with the interpretation of the scriptures, it's more art than science. Uh, but we certainly are encouraged to interpret he, uh, Psalm 40 as being about Christ, because that's what in the Bible, in Hebrews, it does. Good question, though. A couple of questions about fruit and figs. Uh, question four, why does Jesus kill the fig tree in Matthew 21, 18 to 22? This is a question that's unrelated to anything that has been said in church, but someone just thought, I know, I'll ask Jody. You're allowed to do that. So here we go. Jesus is walking along, Matthew 21, 18. As Jesus is returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry. He noticed a fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered up. And someone's reading that and saying, Wow, why so grumpy? Jesus is so grumpy at that fig tree. What's that poor fig tree done wrong? Fair point. Well, what I'm told, uh, not being a horticulturalist, is, is that when fig trees first have their leaves, they usually have these little knobs underneath them that show that they're going to create figs a bit down the track. And then eventually those knobs fall off and then they, within six weeks they make fully grown figs. Now, this is not something I learned at theological college. I just read it in a book, okay? So um, I, I think it's a reliable book, apparently. I, I will ask a, I'll have to ask Sid, uh, the horticulturalist, about whether this is true. Uh, so, uh, but the thing is that if you've got the leaves when they first appear and you don't have any of these little knobby things, it means that the fig tree's never going to make figs. So Jesus said, you're a useless fig tree. You've got one job, make figs. Didn't do it, gone. 
So how is that fair and how does that work? Well, it's a, it's a parable. It's a real-life thing that happened. If you had a video camera, you could have seen Jesus do it. But it's a way of showing that those who do... Well, the fig tree there, in a sense, is, is referring, I think, probably to Jerusalem, or at least Israel. Those who had the potential to receive Jesus as their Messiah, but they've shown no fruit in doing so and no potential to do so. And so that fig tree is then destroyed, much like Jerusalem was as well. Question five, is the fruit in John 15, 1 to 8, the fruit of the Spirit? Maybe sort of. Uh, the, Jesus talked about a vine and he said he is the true vine and he said any branches that didn't bear fruit, he'd cut them off. And the question says, is the fruit of those branches referring to the fruit of the Spirit, which we're actually going to look at a bit this morning. Uh, yes and no. One is Paul's metaphor in, in Galatians and then there's the other one is Jesus talking in John's Gospel. But I think they're kind of similar. It's sort of like fruit is the, the outworking of, of a healthy branch. You will make fruit. It's sort of a similar kind of way to the thing we looked at just then. And so whatever it is, there seems to be some overlap as the as when you are a follower of Jesus, then it's expected that, that you would show fruit because you're connected into the vine. And uh, if someone has not shown any fruit, then it is a great warning to make sure that you have, in fact, come to Jesus. Question six. Did Jesus come as a baby because he wasn't already a human in heaven? Well, it's true that Jesus wasn't already a human in heaven. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but 2,000 years ago, there was a change in the Godhead. God has, has existed eternally, and then 2,000 years ago, something happened. The second person of the Trinity became a human, became flesh. John, 14, John 1, 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. On that very first Christmas, God changed. Incredible, isn't it? And I think that's why when he came, he came as a baby who grew to be a man. But get your head around this. He is still a human. So Jesus died as a human, rose as a human, ascended into heaven as a human, and now sits at the Father's side as a human, which is really cool. And he's still a human right now. Think about that for a moment. You want to get your head around whether or not Jesus really knows what it's like to be one of us? Yes, he does. He still is. Amazing, isn't it? Question seven. Since Jesus didn't sin as a baby, would he have had tantrums? That's a good question. Uh, we know that he did not sin. So in Hebrews 4, it talks about Jesus and it says, verse 15, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, and yet he did not sin. So did he have tantrums? Is that just a normal part of human life? Well, let me tell you how Wikipedia, our source of all things these days, defines a tantrum. I could have got a dictionary off the shelf, but it just seemed too hard. Uh, a, a tantrum is an emotional outburst, usually associated with those in emotional distress, that is typically characterised by stubbornness, crying, screaming, violence, defiance, Angry ranting, a resistance to attempts at pacification, and in some cases, hitting and other physical violent behaviour. Jesus have one of those? Mm, unlikely. But if he did have a tantrum, he did not sin. Now, can you have a tantrum without sinning? Uh, I haven't seen it before, but <laughs> but this is the, the thing we need to think about. He was truly human, but he did not sin. So, good question. Don't know the answer, but I think I sort of do. Question eight. 
Finally, as a child or teenager, could Jesus have chosen not to be our saviour? You ask me these questions from time to time and I love them because it's sort of pushing a statement. So, so Graham was preaching last week about how Jesus had his first words and talked uh, how he learned obedience. Now, what does it mean for him to grow up in that kind of way and, and all of that? And this is a question that comes from that. It's like, okay, well, if that's true, let me just push that hypothesis a little bit harder, which is where this question comes from. Uh, well, it's a good question. One thing we do know is that he was tempted. Now, was he really tempted or was it just a fake? What do you reckon? Was he really tempted? I think he was. You've got to say he was fully tempted. We just read that then. He faced all of the same testings we do, Hebrews 4.15. And he was really feeling the pull to worship the devil instead of worshipping his father. But at the same time, we also know that before the creation of the world, God planned for Jesus to die on the cross. It was already locked and loaded. And so in that sense, he couldn't have gone against the Father's plan. So I think the answer is yes and no. Now You might find that to be a little bit difficult to come with, but the Bible gives us yes and no answers all the time. And so you've got that to do with human responsibility and God's sovereignty and a bunch of other things. Like, you know, why pray if God gives us our prayers, blah, blah, blah. There's all this sort of stuff. The Bible just says both are true, so grab onto them, hold on tight and trust them. And I think it makes the most amount of sense if both of those things are true. But isn't it wonderful that God, as Christ, understood our temptations in every single way and yet through them... He, in the power of the Spirit, said, I'm going to go to the cross because that's what I've got to do. Thank you for listening to this resource from Jamboree Anglican Church. For more information, head to jamborooanglican.com.